And they lived happily ever after. This is the one sentence that characterizes a good book, right? And they lived happily ever after. I don't know about you, but if I'm, if I'm reading a book, you know, taking the time to invest in reading a story or watching a movie, nothing is worse when it comes to investing your time in something and the sense of entertainment to come to a bad ending. How many of you feel that way? You're like, oh man, they did not know how to wrap that thing up. You know, and you can always tell when it's going to be a bad ending. Because you're, you're thinking halfway through, how in the world are they going to tie all these things together? And unless they're really good writers, it doesn't get tied together. Or it ends suddenly. And then, and then one of the main critiques you hear of a, of a movie or a book or a play is, well, whatever it is, it did not end well. Or they just didn't know how to tie up the loose ends. They didn't know how to end the book, the play, the movie. And I think that there's a deeper reason why we desire to have a good ending. I think the deeper reason is that God has hardwired within humanity the, the need to see dots connected. And the, the need that God has given us to, to, to see a happy ending or a fitting conclusion to a story, uh, that, that's more than just entertainment value. That is how God has hardwired us. I'll never forget, uh, my mom gets super like emotionally attached in the midst of movies. And maybe you're like that. I'm, I'm beginning to experience this. I've hardened Rachel over the years. Um, but Julia, we'll be sitting there watching a movie uh, I thought the kids would like the, that new Dumbo movie, so I got it from Redbox and brought it home. And we look over, and Julia's crying when they're being mean to Dumbo. And Timmy and Isaac and I are just kind of looking like, what's going on here? But anyway, my mom is, is very sensitive to movies. And, and, you know, in my mind, anything with Nicolas Cage has got to be a good movie. So I said, hey, you know, here's a movie Rachel and I just watched, and it, and it had a really depressing ending, and, and, and we watched it at New Year's, you know, bringing in the new year, and, and my mom enters the new year all depressed and sad. But I think that God has hardwired within us the need and the desire for a good ending. God's created us, in other words, to long for justice to prevail. To long for wrongs to be made right. God's hardwired us to, to, to long for a dependence that is outside of ourselves that brings us security. It's one of the reasons superheroes have been so popular throughout the decades. Because we are looking for someone outside of us to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Well, in the Bible, God doesn't just provide a happy ending. But God provides a new beginning. Only God can do that. Not only does he provide a happy ending, but he provides a new beginning where the old is completely passed away and the new has finally fully come. Only God could do that. As we come to the last sermon in this series of God's promises, we have traced God's promises, not all of them. There's, uh, we'd be here for years but we've traced some of the highlights of God's promises from Genesis all the way through to the New Testament. We've seen God's plan unfold throughout the pages of Scripture. And now we come to the book of Revelation. You know, the book of Revelation is a very intimidating book. It can be an intimidating book, can it not? There's a lot of, of imagery in it. There's a lot of symbolism 
in it. And, and it's hard to, to understand everything that's going on. But listen, the book of Revelation becomes a very exciting book when we remember one thing. That Revelation, the book of Revelation was written that we as God's people throughout the centuries would be encouraged to persevere, to keep going in our Christian faith because the end is sure and secure. If you keep that mindset when you read the book of Revelation, it will be a super encouraging book to you. And this morning we are going to see yet once again that God, the, the, the whole principle of our series throughout, that God has proven himself true, therefore we can trust him in everything. Let's get that on the, on the uh, screen if we could and let's say this together. God has proven himself true. Therefore, we can trust him in everything. We're going to see we can trust God in everything because the end has already been written this morning. Maybe the details of your life that you do not know the details of your life that are yet to come. None of us do. But we know the certainty of the future that we have as God's people. And this morning, we're just going to look at two things from, the, from Revelation chapter 21. That the promise of a secure future in a new heaven and a new earth, it brings God's people two main things that we're going to see from our text. It brings us hope and it brings us security. Let's say those two words together. Hope. And security. How many of you are in need of hope today? No, I am. How many of you desire security in your life? We're going to look at these things today. Let's pray. Father, as we open up the pages of Scripture, God, I pray that grace would pour out of your word. Not, not the words that, that I speak, but Lord, from the proclamation of the scriptures, Lord, you promise to give grace to the hearers. Lord, you promise that your word as it goes forth is working in our hearts, whether we fully realize it or not. So that Lord, this morning I pray that you would give us as your people here at Covington Baptist Church in Covington, Pennsylvania, you would give us hope and that you would give us security to persevere in our Christian lives, to trust you fully because as we have seen week after week after week in this series, page after page of opening the scriptures, you are faithful to your promises. Lord, would you minister to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 21, as John records his vision of the new heaven and new earth, it is first of all a message of hope. A message of hope to God's people. What is the hope that John gives his readers, that he gives us? What is that hope that God is, 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 is telling him to record the first thing that we see in verses 1 to 2 is that the message of hope is about a new world. It's a new world. And this new world is marked by a new era. Look at verse 1. John is, is describing a progression of, of, of visions of what he has seen. And in verse 21 he says, Then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
You see, this, is, this new world that is for specifically God's people is marked by a new era. That the old is gone. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In other words, everything that has encompassed this fallen, broken world is now no more. Now, many of us sitting here have gone through much deeper difficulties and trials and have felt the sting much greater than others of us sitting here, the sting of living in a broken world with broken bodies. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians 15. What a joy it is to know that this new era that is coming for the people of God no longer is characterized by the things that we now know amongst living in this broken world. In fact, we just read in Revelation 20 and verse 11 the great white throne judgment in which everyone will give an account to God. Look what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. In other words, the old is now completely done away with. Everything in this first heaven and this first earth, at, this, at God's judgment, it is gone. And God now creates something new. This is exactly what the prophet Isaiah says. And we're just going to see, even from one chapter, how much of the Old Testament is used in the book of Revelation. But Isaiah 65, verse 17, God promises his people through the prophet Isaiah. He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. You know what's amazing? So many times we think, when I get to heaven, I am going to ask the Lord these specific questions. Why did you allow this? Why did you allow that? Uh, Why did you bring this into my life? And maybe we will ask the Lord those questions, but I think if we're really looking at what the Bible says, we are going to be so enamored with what God has prepared for his people that those former things we're not even going to care about that we are going to be so overcome with the new that God has made for us. That we're going to see that everything has fit together just by looking at what God has done. So yeah, maybe we will ask those questions, but I don't think that's the first thing that's going to be on our mind. God is making something new. Notice that in describing this new heaven and new earth, it says, and the sea was no more. Now remember, the book of Revelation is full of imagery and symbolism. We are not sure, and we cannot dogmatically say there is no sea in the new earth. What we have to remember is that the sea throughout the book of Revelation symbolizes chaos, evil, disorder. In fact, in Revelation 13, uh, John says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. We're not going to unpack what all that means and symbolizes, but here is what John's readers would understand. Every, Every time sea is mentioned, when it has to do with the earth, We get imagery of these bad things happening and and Satan working his schemes, the beast coming out of the sea. Evil's going to be totally eradicated. Even in the book of Genesis, uh, that the the, the earth was without form and void. The the spirit was hovering over the seas. Uh, The sea has always characterized chaos and disorder and God creates order out of chaos. You see, this new world is marked by a new era, but it's also marked by a beloved city. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride 
adorned for her husband. You see, verse 1 is describing the same thing as verse 2, except in different detail. This new heaven, this new earth, is the new Jerusalem. John sees it, the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. You see, this is a promised city. In the book of Isaiah chapter 62, we're not going to turn there or have it on the screen, but God promises that the day will come when he will refine his people, he will refine, uh, he will create a new Jerusalem, and it will even be called by a new name. This new Jerusalem. This eternal city was anticipated by the saints of old that we even talked about earlier in this series. For instance, Abraham, as he's sojourning in the land that God told him to go to, Pastor Dennis and and Terry talked about, the author of Hebrews says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. It is a promised city promised for all of God's people throughout the ages. But not only is it pictured as a city, it's pictured as a beloved bride. Notice the the description here that this new city, it's prepared as a bride is adorned for her husband. And we're going to see a little bit later when it goes into more description in verses 9 and following of, of the new Jerusalem, the procession of this city. And you remember, if, if, uh, if you are married here today, you remember if you're, if you're a guy, the, the procession of your bride and how you're enamored with her beauty. I remember to, to, to be able to, uh, to see Rachel fully, I, I, I didn't wear glasses during the ceremony, but I put them on uh, to see Rachel come forward. A beautiful, lovely sight. I get points for that. <laughs> but here we see a bride decked out for her husband. This is the city that awaits God's people. Again, Referring back to the book of Isaiah 52, verse 1, Isaiah calls for Jerusalem. He says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Isaiah was anticipating this very moment. Isaiah 61.10, just listen as I read. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. And this is kind of Zion speaking, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We're going to look at those jewels in a bit. This was a greatly anticipated day. This city is described as a bride, but this is not just talking about a city because as we've seen even in Isaiah, the city and its people are intertwined. You see, the bride represents both a place that is being prepared for God's people, but it also describes the very people itself. We are Christ's bride. It's the same idea where we we hear description that God is creating a, a, a new creation, a new earth. Yet at the same time, we as God's people in 2 Corinthians 5 are being referred to. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see, God is preparing both a place and a people for that place. We are given God's robes of salvation. See, this is a beloved bride. Not only do we see, however, that the message of hope is that there is hope that a new world is coming. 
But there is hope that God's covenant relationship that he set out to make with his people will finally fully be realized. There's a promise that goes out from the throne of God in verse 3. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. As we trace the biblical story, what do we see? In Genesis chapter 3, we see God's lost presence in Eden. Not lost in the sense that he was lost, but that we were lost and God's presence was broken from us. In the book of Exodus and Leviticus, we see that presence starting to be restored as God says, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to dwell in the tabernacle, but in order for me to dwell with you, you're going to have to present sacrifices because I cannot dwell with sin. And they, have to be, they had to be offered again and again and again. But, be, but again, because of the sin problem, we see in the book of Ezekiel that God's presence, it leaves the temple because the sin is just so great. And the people are unrepentant, lost presence once again. But then we see Jesus comes on the scene. It says that Jesus tabernacled with man, dwelt with man, when he came down to earth, as as Nate said, as the God-man. His presence was once again with his people in order to secure the very thing we're reading about now that God will forever dwell with his people. He will be our God, we will be his people. This is the fulfillment of God's covenant relationship with us. And then look at verse 4. What's the outcome of this promise? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the reality of God's eternal presence dwelling with his people in a perfect earth where there is no more presence of sin. This is it. No matter how many tears that you are crying here on earth, every single one of them will be eternally wiped away. Isn't that a comfort? Now remember, that the, 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 the original recipients of the book of Revelation were going through intense hardship, oppression, and persecution. Imagine this promise, these promises falling on their ears. Revelation, the opening chapters of Revelation says many of you are going to give your lives for staying true to the faith. You know why I think many times these promises don't mean a lot to us? And we're going to talk about this on September 8th. We begin a new series through the book of 1 Peter. Because we have so made our homes in this world that we become so numb to spiritual truths that we non-admittedly do not even desire that world to come because we are living as if this world is our home. You see, we have to be mindful that this world is not our home, that we are living for greater things than than what this world can possibly give us in order to truly be longing for our true home as God's people. You see, we can have a hope because there is a new world coming. There is a covenant relationship with God that will fully be known and restored. And what does this hope then produce in our lives? Verses 5 to 8 show us that this hope produces perseverance. Look at what it says in verse 5. John gives us an assurance. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy worthy, and true. Remember, we can trust uh, fully upon God 
because his promises are tried and true, God is saying, mark it down. This is a true saying. All things will be made new. That broken body, it'll be made new. That broken relationship where you are struggling with another believer, where there's misunderstandings, where there seems to be irreconcilable differences, that will be made new. Our struggle with sin, where we, we seem to go two steps forward, one step back, and, and we're up and down and up and down, we will be made new. The oppression, many times the ostracism that we may experience when we share our faith, when we try to live as witnesses for God, it will no longer be experienced. And then God gives an invitation in verse 6. He says to me, He said to me, It is done. Isn't that interesting? It is done. Obviously, this hasn't happened yet, has it? But with God, the end has already been written. Listen, when I'm going through a difficulty, a situation, and, and, and listen, I'm a worrier. Rachel's the less of a worrier in our relationship. Um, but I, I, I like to, as, as weird as it sounds, I like to worry about things. I think you know what I'm talking about. But if somebody says, hey, this particular worry, hey, look, here's the ending. So, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have a tendency to worry less about that situation if I already know the end. And here God is saying, it's completely done. This is the end. Now, are you going to trust me with the immediate unknowns because now you know the end? That's the question that we have every day of our Christian existence. Are we going to trust God with the unknowns because of what we do know? The end is secure. There's hope. It is done also reminds me of the it is finished of the cross, doesn't it? That because Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, so God says history has been written. The end is secure. And then he gives this invitation to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Are you thirsty this morning? This morning, are you here and there is something that's prodding you in your heart that, man, there's got to be more than what I am currently living for? There has to be something that truly lasts, that is of eternal value. God says, come, drink of the eternal life that is offered. And then in verse 7, he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Here we see the call to conquer. You see, we as Christians are living in this life, experiencing heartache, experiencing temporal shame because of our, our witness for Christ, or at least if, we, if we're being the kind of witnesses we really should be, we, we probably should be experiencing more, more ostracism and, and pushback than maybe we even are. God says to the one who conquers, verse 6 is a reality. In other words, are you living out your faith? In Revelation 2, when, when uh, John is, is, is writing to the seven churches, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, what we see here, again, just like what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that we talked about, that, that we continue in the faith. We see a perseverance that we endure the hardships. We endure for the sake of our Lord. 
Because if we do not, what assurance of our faith is there? In other words, like James says, it is faith that saves us, but faith without works is dead. Are we clinging to the persevering power of our Lord and Savior saying, yes, Lord, I will follow you even through suffering, even through shame? That is the call of the book of Revelation. That if we give up and walk away, then that is an indicator that we were never truly his. For God's people will persevere. You see, the one who conquers will have the heritage of everything that is written here in Revelation 21 and that covenant relationship, I will be his God and he will be my son. But notice the contrast of verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatry, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're going to see in just a bit that there's a reason that, Paul, that, or that John gives all of these descriptions because these are characteristics of the citizens of this world. What Revelation refers to as Babylon. In other words, stemming from pulling from the Old Testament, Babylon, where the people of Israel were exiled to, John is saying, you as Christians, you and I, from the time of Christ's death and the establishment of the church till the time that Jesus returns, we are living in spiritual exile. We'll talk about this in 1 Peter. We are living in Babylon, so to speak. We are living in this world system that is totally opposed to God. And these characteristics that we read of in verse 8 are characteristics of this world system. Individuals that make their home in this world that are without Christ will have no part of the heritage of those that follow him and those that persevere in his name. So while it may seem that the ungodly and those that are making their home in this world are prospering right now, there is no eternal heritage for them. So are we going to try to imitate the world for a temporal heritage or are we going to live for something of true eternal significance? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Now we're quickly running out of time. But we're going to see the second factor that not only does what we read in Revelation 21 of this new earth, this new heaven, produce hope, but it produces security. Why can we have security? Because we know there is a city for the saints of God. We all desire a place to belong. We all desire a place to fit in. Man, that's our fear ever since we went to kindergarten, right? Am I going to have friends? Am I going to fit in? Listen, there are two places where God's people know, or at least should know, if we are living according to God's way as a church and as, as a group of people, there's two places where every single follower of Jesus should fit in. Right here on this earth, in Christ's church, this room. Secondly, for all eternity, in the city that's promised for God's people. Don't spend your time fretting if you're a high schooler, if you're in college, if you're an adult in the workplace. The desire to fit in, peer pressure, is not something that's limited between the ages of 12 to 18. We experience it, experience it our whole life. Let's stop trying to fit in in a world system that we're just not going to fit in. Let's rest assured 
that we fit in here in this assembly because we are blood-bought believers and that we will fit in in what is just a taste of what is to come here in this assembly in eternity. That's what the only two places that matter. How good it is to be gathered together as God's people to be reminded of this. But look at the procession of this city in verse 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Again, referring back to verse 2, this new Jerusalem. So verse 9, again, describes this city as a beautiful bride. Now, this is in exact language to what we read in chapter 17 of a contrast. I just want to go there, turn over, if you will, to chapter 17 just really quickly. Notice the, 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 the same language in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you, now that's all the similarities, now it's complete opposites. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. There you have that term of sea. There will be no more sea. Description of evil. He says, verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. Didn't we just read about that? And with the wine, didn't we just read about drunkards? The wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. This isn't a beloved city that we're going to see is filled with jewels. No, this is a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Uh, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and here she is adorned with jewels and adorned with gold, jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. In other words, this description of Babylon and all of the rulers and the individuals that align themselves with this world system that drink of the immorality of idolatry and of the temporal nature of this earth, they align themselves not with a beautiful bride, but with a prostitute. And here, John is telling these first century Christians that are struggling under under hardship and persecution, long for the bride... Don't settle for the prostitute that may be good for a night, but then destruction comes. What are you settling for this morning? The the, the counterfeit, the prostitute of temporal pleasure? Or are you looking to that glorious city when God's work will be complete and create that new city and also create us as the bride fit for that city. As he and Christ are our bridegroom. You see, verse 10 continues, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. The Old Testament mountains are often uh, symbolic of kingdoms. This is a great high mountain. Now, these believers are, are, are enduring the high kingdom of Rome and, and the oppression that Rome is bringing, but they are to look for a greater, higher mountain, a greater kingdom to come. And, and what is that? He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Then we see the description of this beautiful city. It's having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, and on the east, three gates, the north, three, the south, three, the west, three, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. While we can't talk about everything here, we see the description of this city that number one, verse 11 says, it's filled with the glory of God. The mention of these jewels 
are meant to symbolize the glory of God in all of its majesty, radiance, and purity. This is a holy city. This is a glorious city. But not only that, verses 12 and 13 describe for us this is a fortified city. It is surrounded by gates. There's 12 gates that, that, that are uh, d- descriptive of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There's three gates on each of these sides, and, and, and this parallels the encampment of Israel in the wilderness as they encamped around the tabernacle. But also, this is a city, verse 14, that has foundations, just like what Abraham was looking at in Hebrews 11. The foundations, it had 12 of them. And on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. You know what basically this is being descriptive of? It's being descriptive that that this city is a city where God's glory shines from, from coast to coast, so to speak. And all of the people of God are included in this city. Both Israel of old and God's new covenant people built upon the message of the apostles. All of God's people have a place in this eternal city. But not only is this a city for the saints of God that we can find our security in, This city is also described to be a temple city. In verse 15, and very quickly as we we wrap up, there's a call to measure. It says, The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Then we see the measurements in in verses um, 16 and 17. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Basically, what this is describing is the city is a perfect cube. The measurements are exact. And what John is doing, again, drawing from the Old Testament, is he is, is, is drawing upon the fact that the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple was a perfect cube. That is where God dwelt. What John is saying is God's presence will be in this temple city. It will be a temple city because God's presence dwells there. The measurements themselves are more taken to be symbolic than literal. One individual says 12,000 stadia was about 1,500 miles, which was about the size of the then-known Hellenistic world. Uh, Thus, the, the measurement is a picture of the whole world being filled with God's presence. This is what John is trying to get across to us. The the measurements themselves are in multiples of 12. And uh, in in the type of literature, apocalyptic literature, which which Revelation is written in, 12 is the number of perfection and wholeness. This is a complete, whole, perfect city. This city does not just comprise one part of the world. It is the world itself. And then, of course, there's great beauty Verses 18 to 21, the wall was built of jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Uh, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We don't have time to get to chapter 22, but what we see is description, again, drawing upon the Old Testament. This is a temple city, which is a renewed Eden, Garden of Eden. Jewels, likewise, are mentioned in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.12, Ezekiel 28.13. It's also 
The, the jewels mentioned here bring to mind the breastplate of the high priest that he wore when he went to go into the Holy of Holies in God's presence. Symbolizing that the people of God were, were, were on God's heart. The high priest wore them. This is a fulfillment of what Isaiah 54, verse 11 and 12 says, speaking of the city uh, and, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he says, Oh, afflicted one, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis. I'm going to go with Timmy on this one. Lazuli, is that right? Or lazuli? I don't know. Timmy said it says lapis lazuli in Minecraft, so I'm going to go with that. Uh, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of sparkling jewels and all your walls of precious stones. So you see here, the emphasis is not, okay, let's try to draw this city right to detail. The emphasis here is on the overall description that this is a city where God's glory is everywhere. This is a priceless city, but every day we exchange the priceless for that which is is fleeting and temporal. This is a city for the saints of God. This is a temple city. But then lastly, and in conclusion, my time is done, I know that. This is the city of God. Verse 22, God and the Lamb will dwell there. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, this is a temple city, not because a a, a literal temple is built in this city. It is a temple city because God's presence dwells in the temple, which is the whole world. What God started in Genesis 1 and told Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with all of my image bearers, it comes to pass here through the work of Jesus. God and the Lamb will dwell there. I want to be in this place. We also see that the presence of God and the Lamb will shine bright The city has no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So so the glory of God, again, it fills this city. Now we don't know if there's no sun or no moon. It says says here the city has no need of sun or moon. uh, But what, what what the point is, is that God's glory is so preeminent that man, you don't need those lights to to, to shine on the, on the earth. Because what's going to happen, verse 24, by the light of God and the Lamb, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Listen, that would mean a lot to John's audience. The kings of the earth, they think they are supreme. They are sovereign. They're calling the shots. They're putting persecution on the people. They're causing heartache. But in God's kingdom, all of the nations of the earth are going to flood into the city, into this city to worship the one true God. The nations will walk in the ways of the Lord. Verse 25, its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. It's a secure city. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But, and here's the contrast, this city is also pure. Nothing unclean will ever enter in, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. As we close, I just want to read this for you. And you listen along. One theologian, Grant Osborne, says this, no relation to Terry, I assume. So much has been written about heaven down through the centuries. 
Yet the only extended biblical description is found only here in Revelation 21. The most important thing about it is that it will realize the greatest promise of all. We will dwell with God face to face. Moses could not look on him and live. We will not only look upon him, but walk with him hand in hand. Moreover, all of our suffering will be over. There will be no crying or tears or pain, only joy as we inhabit our perfect eternal body. What we think of today as pure luxury will be commonplace, as the description here shows. But unlike the luxury of the great prostitute in Revelation 17, this luxury will not be wrung from the blood and sweat of those who have been crushed by injustice. Instead, God will give it to those who have loved him even to the point of death. It is impossible to imagine the beauty and the glory and the bliss of our eternal heavenly existence. Human minds cannot begin to think of the wonders of heaven. Here as we see heaven comes to earth. If we think of the most glorious life possible and multiply it a million times, that is a mere approximation of what will be ours. The angels will be our next door neighbors and the Old Testament heroes as well as the apostles will live just down the street. This chapter is nothing more than a slight picture of what awaits us. Are you looking to that day? Are you living today in light of tomorrow? Not the worries of tomorrow, but the promise of tomorrow if you are one of God's people who have been bought with the blood of Jesus. As we close this morning, let's say this together one last time. God has proven himself true. Therefore, we can trust him in everything. Let's pray.